It's going to be a giggles moment. Now wait. <laughs> Just get it all out. Damn fairies. <laughs> fairies. <laughs> okay, I'm good. Are you? Yep. Okay. Hello, Horror Fanatics. I'm Frank. And I'm Jen, and we welcome you to our weekly podcast. Ooh. Oh. The horror. The horror. <laughs> Thank you for joining us as we dive deep into all things horror, supernatural, scary, and downright creepy. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and subscribe to add us to your regular rotation of podcasts. You can also submit any ideas, comments, and suggestions to our email address at OTH at seriouslydecent.com. I mean, you can. We're not going to read it, but... Yeah, probably not. We'll, we'll give it a glance. <laughs> I don't know. If you send uh, if you send any kind of uh, any kind of money, we'll read them. Yeah, right. That's, what, that's, that's the price of admission. <laughs> if you'd like to uh, check out our, our whole back catalog, connect to your favorite podcast uh, platform, you can go to our website at ohthehorrorpodcast.com. Dot com. Sure can. You you can do that. Yeah. How you doing? I am doing well. Yeah. How are you? I'm fantastic. Wow. You know. Okay. Had my birthday. You did. Had did a, you feel any different? No. You feel older, no. wiser? I feel great. Yeah? I really do. Okay. I'm not blown smoke either. All right. I feel absolutely wonderful. Nice. Had a nice day yesterday with the moms. Sure did. The moms came over. Sure did. One mom's still here. Yep. For a few days. Yep. So that's nice to connect and chill and relax. And, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes it's a little tough with just like 30 minute phone calls or 40 minute phone calls. You know, you don't yeah. get everything in. So no, you need that FaceTime. Yeah. You need that personal connection. I sure do. Yeah. So, Dyatlov Pass today. Super excited about this one. This was, you know, it's weird. How outdoorsy I can be. And you didn't know anything about this. I never heard of this. So reading the book, which I'll just come out with my source right away. Okay. Dead Mountain, The Untold True Story of the Dyatlov Pass Incident by Donnie, it's either Icar or Ichar, E-I-C-H-A-R. Great book. Mm -hmm. I, I blew through it in literally like two days. It was just a really, really exciting read. He did the whole, you know, for someone who knows nothing of mm-hmm. it, like myself, it yeah. was a perfect book because it explained the pretense of everything. Glad I picked it out for you. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I really appreciate it. I have two sources. One is an article from nature.com by Johan Guillaume and Alexander M. Pusrin. And a New Yorker um, magazine article uh, called Has an Old Soviet Mystery at Last Been Solved by Douglas Preston. Mm. Yeah. So we are doing true oh the horror form right here. Because we sure you are. went your direction, I went my direction. Mm-hmm. We've literally talked about this topic a total of five minutes yes. since we've been reading on it. Yes. And you know, doing our notes. Yes. So I have no idea what you have for notes. 
You and have no idea what I have for notes. I got a pretty good idea because well, I mean, your book is referenced in my source, at least mm-hmm. one of my sources. Yeah. I think it's in the New Yorker article. Well, but, here's the here's the thing. Without even knowing what our, what our notes are. Yes. We know that there were some people that went on a hike. And they didn't come back. And they didn't come back. And their bodies and were it's discovered. And shrouded in mystery. Correct. So... With that being said, let's get into this. Let's get into this. So, All right. I'll I'll preface the the fact of it that that's basically what happened. If yes. you want the cliff notes, yeah. If you're in a hurry, yep. And you got to get to this podcast later, but you just want to know what the hell happened. What's a diet law of pass? Yes. Uh, diet law of pass. The name is actually Igor. Or Igor. Igor. The which love. I'm gonna I'm gonna prefaces today we're going to butcher some some russian names yeah this takes place 100% so, in russia our our apologies right up that's my number one disclaimer before right. we even get into any of this if you're from russia cuz we have some people that listen from russia and hey guys so if you're you got some insight if you got some insight Contact us at our email if address. If we really severely butchered some pronunciations, mm-hmm. let us know. Or if there's a whole nother uh, theory that we yeah. haven't, uh, yeah. that we didn't bring up. Yep. There's there's quite a bit of them. We'll get to their uh, their account later, but yeah. But I really want to preface with all due respect, we are going to butcher the snot out of a lot of these names. A yeah. lot of times we're going to refer to them as the hikers because we just don't want to go through. <laughs> And just butcher a name over and over and over again. I felt bad just reading the book. Yeah. Because I knew I wasn't even reading the names correctly. I was just <laughs> like, I can't even read these. And, and in a matter of... I uh, know, man. There's just some... Can I buy a vowel? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, there's some that I'm just reading. I'm like, I'm going to have to actually say these words. And I <laughs> yeah, can't even exactly. read them, you know. And I've always had a very strong appreciation for the language over there mm-hmm. because I think it's beautiful. I love hearing it spoken. Yes. I just, I think it's a beautiful language. I heard that it's literally like one of the toughest languages to learn. And, and you start reading through this, it's, it's tough. It's really tough. Fun but, fact, I was friends with a guy whose major was Russian. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I love languages. Yeah. And we would just sit down and chat and just go over the nuances. Now, that does not mean I have any sort of insight or I have any sort of direction as to how these things are supposed to be pronounced. I wouldn't believe you if you said you did. (laughs) So, So, but basically in 1959, on February 1st, nine hikers lost their lives. Yes, at what they call the Dyatlov Pass now. Right. Originally, it's called the... Boy, I thought I had my notes all... Uh, had it's a, a name for it. Ha, ha, <laughs> yeah? H-O-L-A-T-C-H-A-H-L. And it's Halatakla or something like that. And we're going to call Easy it. Easy for you to say. Yeah. We're going to call it Dyatlov Pass. <laughs> All right. Because that's, and I think they probably named it. They're like, you know what? Let's just call it Dyatlov Pass. That's it's a little more pronounceable. But it was a group of college students, university yep. students. Yep. Uh, the oldest one in the group was about 37 or 38. 
And he was a last minute addition. And he was a last minute addition. But the rest of them are 22, 23. Uh, another one's 24. Uh, the youngest one, Luda, one of uh, two women on the hiking group. She was 20 years old. Yep. But you had... Uh, she was an economics major, a track athlete, and an ardent communist. Yes. Who wore her long blonde hair and braids tied with silk ribbons. Yep. And they were a student in uh, construction school at UPI. And they were basically students of radio engineering. They were radio enthusiasts. You had a wide group here. You had a student of nuclear physicists or physics, uh, radio engineering, uh, construction and hydraulics, mechanical engineers, civil construction engineers. I have Zina Kolmogorova. Zina, they... Named her for sure. Yep. Yeah. Um, she was the second woman. They were among the elite of Soviet youth and all mm-hmm. highly experienced winter campers yeah. and cross-country skiers. Uh, Dyatlov's close friend, Georgi Krivonshichenko, mm-hmm. who had graduated from UPI two years before, worked as an engineer at the Mayak nuclear complex and the then secret town of uh 40 uh, jug-eared, small, and wiry. He told jokes, sang, and played the mandolin. Yeah. Two other recent graduates were Rustem Slobodin and Nikolai Tibolt Brignolis, of French descent, whose father had been worked nearly to death in one of Stalin's camps. Mm-hmm. And the other students included Yuri Yudin, Yuri Doroshenko, and Alexander Kole- Kolevitov. And, the, and again, the youngest was uh, Liuda. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, they were either graduates or yep. or students, you know, current students. And they, the universities at this point had hiking groups. Yep. And hiking associations, mm-hmm. and they were a level two group of hikers. Yes. In search of, and seeking out through this hike to get their level three certification, mm-hmm. which at that time was the highest certification you could get. For hiking yep. in extreme conditions, so on and so forth. So to preface this whole story, these are people who know what they're doing. Correct. They are experienced in harsh weather environments, yes. obviously just being in the country, but also in camping with minimal supplies. Yes. Or supplies. This wasn't uh, nine many hikers. Of them were winter campers. Yeah. So they were not you know, it's not like they, they didn't know the proper procedures. This wasn't nine people These were from not, the city who yeah. just said, let's go on a camping let's trip for the, for the weekend. Let's go hiking. Oh, my weekend. God. It'll yeah. be great. No, this is, yeah, they, no. they knew what they were doing, and they were after a certain thing. They right, were going yeah. on this challenging hike to get this level three certification and be respected in that smaller community of level three hikers. Right. So I... Like, again, I don't know how you have it set up, Jen, but I with have, my notes, I have a whole timeline. I do, too. Okay. So we can... Um, I have, they left uh, Sverdlovsk by train on January 23rd, and mm-hmm. several of them hid under the seats to avoid buying tickets. They mm-hmm. were in high spirits, so high that on a layover between trains, 
Kravanishchenko was briefly detained by police for playing his mandolin and pretending to panhandle in the train station. Yeah, yeah. We know these details because there was a communal journal, and many of the skiers also kept personal journals. Well, and that's uh, one thing I wanted to interject quick, Mm -hmm. and especially with the book. Mm -hmm. The book had a lot of pictures. Yes. They chronicled basically the whole thing thing really well with journals and, and photographs. Yep. At least five of them had cameras, and the pictures they took show a lively and strikingly handsome group of young people having the adventure of their lives, skiing, laughing, playing in the snow, and mugging for the camera. Yeah. After two days on trains, the party reached Ivdel, a remote town with a Stalin-era prison camp. Uh, By then, held mostly uh, criminals. From there, the group traveled another day by bus. Well, before that, on the 24th, they... Uh, also spent an afternoon entertaining uh, children at what's called school number 41. And so they spent the day with them. Mm-hmm. There were some pictures and things like that there. So they were really just getting into the whole moment. They were having fun. Of going through. They were having a blast. Yep. Yeah. From there, the group traveled another day by bus, then in the back of a woodcutter's truck, and oh. finally by ski, guided by a horse-drawn sleigh. They slept in an abandoned logging camp called Second Northern, there, Yuri Yudin had a flare-up of sciatica that forced him to pull out of the trip. Mm-hmm. The next day, January 28th, he turned back while the remaining nine set off toward the mountains. Yeah, so originally there was ten. Yes. And the, now nine are left. The plan was to end up at the tiny village of Vishai around February 12th and telegram the UPI Sports Club that they had arrived safely and the expected telegram never came. Mm-hmm. At first, the UPI Sports Club assumed that the group had just been held up. There had been reports of a heavy snowstorm in the mountains, but well, after... Hold on before that. Yeah. So, basically, January 31st, the hikers were continuing upstream on the Aspuya River and set up for camp that night. Mm-hmm. February 1st... Their arrival day, on the first half of that day, the hikers constructed a temporary storage shelter. And what they were going to do is leave some supplies inside to lighten their packs for the trip up to, it's Otorten Mountain. Mm -hmm. That's the the mountain they're, they're summoning. The group then skis all afternoon, arriving at what would become known as Dyatlov Pass at 3 p.m. The sun sets at 4.58 p.m., they set the tent on the eastern slope of the Halachal uh, Mountain at an altitude of 1,079 meters, which is basically about 3,540 feet. Mm-hmm. And then that's the last right. of, of the Chronicles. So this is so where we get to... After several days had passed, families of the group began placing frantic, frantic calls to the university and to the local bureau of the Communist Party. And on February 20th, a search was launched. Well, I'm sorry, before that. <laughs> so the the 10th hiker, Yuri Yudin, he returned home yes. on the 2nd. Yes. I'm just being critical of the timeline here. So February 12th, when they were supposed to return, Yudin, who was still in uh, Amel, Amelish. Escheva forgets to relay the message to Sverdlok. I can't remember. It was the guy who was collecting the information mm-hmm. of the group, uh, the group hikers, that they he notified them that the Dyatlov group was going to be three days late. Mm-hmm. So on the twelfth, that information was given, and then the fifteenth, which you're mentioning, I I'm, no, 
That's when the relatives of the hikers are unaware of their expected delay Mm -hmm. and they start worrying when their loved ones fail to return to basically home, which was planned the 13th. Yes. So the families contacted the university and the local bureau of the Communist Party and on February 20th, a search was launched. There were several search parties, student student volunteers from UPI, prison guards from the Ivdel camp, Mansi Hutter, Hunters, local police, the military deployed planes and helicopters, and on February 25th, the students found ski tracks, and the next day they discovered the skier's tent above the tree line on a remote mountain that Soviet officials referred to as Height 1079 and that the Mansi called Kolat Sikel, or, de- or Dead Mountain. There was no one inside. The tent was partly collapsed and largely buried in snow. After digging it out, the search party saw that the tent appeared to have been deliberately See, slashed in several places. That's where my source was different. I read and they had pictures of it in the book where it wasn't covered in snow. And it says inside the tent, everything was neat and orderly. Yeah. Skiers, boots, axes, and other equipment were mm-hmm. arranged on either side of the door. Food was laid out as if it was about to be eaten. There was a stack of wood for heating a stove, clothes, cameras, and journals. About 100 feet downhill, the search party found very distinct footprints of eight or nine people walking, not running, toward the tree line. Almost all the prints were of stockinged feet, some even bare. One person appeared to be wearing a single ski boot. And some of the prints indicated that the person was either barefoot or in socks because you could see the toes, Mm -hmm. a searcher later testified. The party followed the prints downhill for six to 700 yards until they vanished near the tree line. The next morning, searchers found the bodies of the mandolin player, Krivanischenko, and the student, Doroshenko, under a tall cedar tree at the edge of the forest. They were lying next to a dead fire, wearing only underwear. 12 to 15 feet up the tree were some recently broken branches, and on the trunk, bits of skin and torn clothes were found. Later that day, a search party discovered the bodies of Dyatlov and Kolmogorova. Both were farther up the slope, facing in the direction of the tent, their fists tightly clenched. They seemed to have been trying to get back to the tent. The four bodies were autopsied while the search for the others continued. The medical examiner noted a number of bizarre features. Krivanischenko had blackened fingers and third-degree burns on a shin and a foot. Inside his mouth was a chunk of flesh that he had bitten off his right hand. Doroshenko's body had burned hair on one side of the head and a charred sock. All the bodies were covered with bruises, abrasions, scratches, and cuts, as was a fifth body, that of the recent graduate Slobodan, who was discovered a few days later. Like Dyatlov and Kolmora Gorova, Slobodin was on the slope leading back to the tent with a sock on one foot and a felt booty on the other. His autopsy noted a minor fracture to his skull. By now, a homicide investigation was underway, led by a prosecutor in his mid-30s named Lev Ivanov. Toxicology tests were done, witness testimony taken, diagrams and maps made of the scene, and evidence gathered and forensically analyzed. The tent and its contents were helicoptered out of the mountains and set up again inside a police station. This led to a key discovery. A seamstress who came to the station to do a uniform fitting happened to notice that the slashes in the tent had been made from the inside. 
Something had happened that induced the skiers to cut their way out of the tent and flee into the night, into a howling blizzard in 20 below zero temperatures in bare feet or socks. They were not novices to the winter mountains. They would have been acutely aware of the fatal consequences of leaving the tent half-dressed in those conditions. This is the central and apparently inexplicable, inexplicable mystery of the incident. Four bodies remained missing. In early May, when the snow began to melt, a Mansi hunter and his dog came across the remains of a makeshift snow den in the woods 250 feet from the cedar tree. A floor of branches laid in a deep hole in the snow. Pieces of tattered clothing were found strewn about. Black cotton sweatpants with the right leg cut off, the left half of a woman's sweater. Another search team arrived and using avalanche probes around the den, they brought up a piece of flesh. Excavation uncovered the four remaining victims lying together in a rocky steam bed under at least 10 feet of snow. The autopsies revealed catastrophic injuries to three of them. Tybalt Brignol's skull was fractured so severely that pieces of bone had been driven into the brain. Zolotoryev and Dubunina had crushed chests with multiple broken ribs. These are the ones that were found in the ravine. Correct. And the autopsy report noted a massive hemorrhage in the right side of Dubunina's heart. The medical examiner said the damage was similar to what is typically seen as the result of an impact of an automobile moving at high speed. Yet none of the bodies had external penetrating wounds, though Zolotaryov's was missing its eyes and Dubinina's was missing its eyes, tongue, and part of the upper lip. A careful inventory of clothing recovered from the bodies revealed that some of these victims were wearing clothes taken or cut off the bodies of others. Just a quick pause because you're flying through a lot of this. Yeah, there's a lot. No, I know, but there's context, and this is where the context gets taken into place when people start coming up with these theories on what went wrong. Mm -hmm. The first set of bodies were discovered fairly soon. Yes, and not far from from the They were about 100 100 to 200 yards. They weren't far. Now, the next set of bodies that you're mentioning now, that was a long time later. That was in May. They you found know, those bodies. Yeah, that's a whole couple of months, you know. So as talking about the injuries and the eyes missing and things like that. Yes. Just so people have perspective of that. A radiological expert testified that because the bodies had been exposed to running water for months, these le- these levels of radiation must originally have been many times greater. They found levels of radiation in their clothing. And on May 28th, Ivanov abruptly closed the investigation. His role was was to determine whether a crime had been committed, not to clarify what had happened. And he concluded that homicide was not a factor. Ivanov ended his report with a non-explanation that has bedeviled Dyatlov researchers ever since. It should be concluded that the cause of the hikers' demise was an overwhelming force, which they were not able to overcome. An unknown compelling force. Correct. Which was actually in the report. In classic Soviet style, a number of officials who had little to do with the tragedy were either punished or fired, including the director of UPI and the chairman of its sports club, the local Communist Party secretary, the chairman of two workers' unions, and a union inspector. The investigative files, photographs, and journals were classified, and the area around Dead Dead Mountain was placed off-limits to skiers and outdoor enthusiasts 
excuse me, for years. The tent was stored, but eventually became moldy and had to be thrown out. The saddle in the mountains, which the skiers were heading for but never reached, was named the Dyatlov Pass. The victims' families were left deeply dissatisfied. Many of them wrote to officials, including Khrushchev, demanding a more thorough investigation. But nothing more was done, and the mysterious deaths of the nine skiers subsided into relative obscurity. In 1990, the prosecutor, Ivanov, who had retired, published an article in which he claimed that while compiling his 1959 report, he'd been pressured not to include his views on what happened. The article, titled The Enigma of the Fireballs, said that the skiers had been killed by heat rays or balls of fire associated with UFOs in his original examination of the scene. Ivanov had found, had found trees with unusual burn marks, which confirmed, quote, that some kind of heat ray, say, or a powerful force whose nature is completely unknown, to us at least, acted selectively on specific objects, end quote. In this case, people. The last photograph in Krivanishchenko's camera showed flares and streaks of light against a black background. By then, the official file files had been released, and in the decades since, the case has become one of the most celebrated mysteries of the Soviet era. It has generated dozens of books and documents, documentaries, along with a slew of websites and message, message boards on which Dyatlov obsessive trades, trade scores of theories. The official count of the Russian prosec prosecutor general's office lists 75 about what happened. In 2000, Relatives and friends of the victims established the Dyatlov Group Memorial Foundation, whose purpose is to honor the memory of the skiers and seek the truth. Its president is Yuri Kunstsevich, who, as a 12-year-old boy, attended the funerals of some of the victims. He went on to study and teach at UPI, which has since uh, become the Ural State Technical Institute our university, and to join its sports club. Now in his mid-70s, he still leads tours to the Dyatlov Pass, Kuntsevich told me that Russians generally favor one of two theories. The skiers died because they had stumbled into an area where secret weapons were being tested. Alternatively, the party was killed by mercenaries, probably American spies. Kuntsevich, Which are both, I'm sorry, crazy theories. Correct. <laughs> Kuntsevich insists that the first of these theories is the correct one, and it's also what the families tend to believe. Oh, yeah. The yeah. idea is that a missile launch of some kind went disastrously wrong, inflicting severe injuries on some of the skiers and forcing the group to flee their tent, at which point they either froze to death or were killed by military observers. Yuri Yudin, whose sciatica compelled him to abandon the trip, likewise maintained that the deaths were not natural. Not long before he died... In 2013, he declared that his teammates had been taken from the tent at gunpoint and murdered. Dubanina, he said, may have had her tongue cut out by the killers because she was the most outspoken of the group. So proponents of the weapons test theory cite claims from people in the region that they had seen flashes of light or moving balls of fire in the direction of the mountains. Yeah, those are the orbs yeah, that they talk about. Yeah, in 2008, a three-foot-long piece of metal was found in the area. According to the Dyatlov Foundation, which took possess possession of it, the metal is part of a Soviet ballistic missile. Military tests would explain the radioactivity of recovered clothing. Yev Yevgeny 
Okashev, Ivanov's uh, supervisor in the prosecutor general's office, gave an interview to a newspaper in 2013 in which he recalled finding it suspicious when he and his colleagues were instructed to test recovered items for radiation. He sent a letter to his superiors asking why radiation was relevant. In response, the deputy prosecutor general met with the team. Okashev said that the official dodged questions about weapons testing and ordered them to tell people that the deaths were accidental. The victim's parents came to the office, some scream, and called us fascists for hiding the truth from them, Okashev recalled, but the case was closed and not on our orders. The theory, however, is not consistent with what was found at the site. There was no evidence that other people had been there. Snow does not lie. It would have been close to impossible to erase signs of the people and equipment involved in killing the group and restaging the scene. Well, and here's the thing with that. So, again, slow down for a second. So, when they go up there for the rescue, they originally find distinct tracks of nine people. Eight or nine, it said. Yeah. Yes. Well, so my, not extra. I'm going with my source. Okay. <laughs> Which my source, I'm just going to be honest. I'm really compelled by the book because he actually went there. Mm-hmm. The kid actually went at the time a kid, but he was doing documentaries. And this wasn't even anything he was doing on the side. Like this was, this was just a passion he had that turned into literally an obsession. Yes. And he has all the case files. He has everything. Mm-hmm. Absolutely everything. So- when they went up there, they saw tracks for nine people. Yes. Nothing else. Correct. The wounds that they had, nothing was of a violent means of another person. Correct. So when you hear the, the theories of the gunmen and the armed yes. men. There's nothing. Number one, the cuts were made from inside the tent. Yes. No evidence of tracks at all. Correct. Zero reports at the time of any escaped prisoners. Right. Or anything like that. The closest prison was 50 miles away. Yes. The injuries sustained by some of the hikers can also be explained by falling down the ravine. Yes. The ones that were injured the most were in the ravine. Correct. The other ones that weren't in the ravine died of causes that weren't caused from any kind of fall or anything like that. Even like Luda's tongue that they talked about how her tongue missing and no one else was missing. And they were saying that, you know, it was cut off. and Because she but, was the most outspoken. But they actually but... looked at her her um, her body mm-hmm. and they said that the tongue was just removed. Yes. Not cut off, just no. flat out removed, which with natural decomposition, any of those means could I'm create gonna that process. I'm going to go by um, animal scavenging. You know, but here's, this is where I wanted to slow things down because the family went into instant, there's something going on mode. Yes. For one, Conspiracy for theory. two reasons. Mm-hmm. Number one, the government's just trying to figure out what the hell's going on. Now you got to realize you're in communist Russia right now. Yes. Communist Russia has this appeal of we can't be weak. Right. We can't have anything going wrong. Correct. Even our, our process can't be... Looked at and questioned. You can't question anything. Just so people can get, just so people can get an understanding of this time period. When they were hiking up and they're playing on the mandolin, they would play a lot of songs and they were anti-government songs. Mm -hmm. They were anti-system songs. And they had to sing them and know the words to them because you couldn't record them. If you recorded them, you were against the government and you were locked up. Yes. So 
all of these songs were passed around. So there's this fear of the government. Right. There's yes. this massive fear of the government. So it's instantly the government's up to something. Mm-hmm. And it's just because of the shrouded mystery because, I mean, honestly, I'm going to bring this up a couple of times, but what what people are trying to do right now is reverse engineer an event without any witnesses. Correct. Which is impossible. Right. So I'm going to say as a preface right here, no one's ever going to know what really happened that night. No. No one's ever going to know. No. So as we talk about this, we're going to go through some theories and bust through some theories. And that's like the weapons testing. So like the rocket tests and orbs, witness testimonies at first, when it first came out, and this is where all this gained traction. Right. They were saying that the orb sightings were on the night of February 1st where they were missing, so to speak. Right, yes. Now, the fact is, is it actually was the mid-month of February. Someone actually came on their statement and they were like, no, wait, you know what? It wasn't time right now that I think about it. Because it was just a landmark in time. They were like, yeah, no, it was that night. Yeah. You know, but then they started corroborating with other witnesses. Yes. And not just other witnesses of also the Manzi uh, settlement, Mm -hmm. which was 60 miles away. Right. They they were, you know, and this is a like a local tribe. Yes. So they got their own kind of thing going on. Right. Um, And so it was mid month. The rocket tests later on as they started bringing the case files out were along those dates as well. And Mm -hmm. the only rocket test during the first they actually confessed to one on the first it was 1,200 miles away, and the rockets they were testing only had a range of 100 miles. Right. So. Yeah. And couldn't have been there. No, it just couldn't have been there. So that's the thing is, as we start going through here, right. we're going to start chipping away at yes, a lot of these theories. Yes, we're going to chip away at a lot of these Which, theories. honestly, a lot of them are easy to chip away at. Yes. And I'm surprised the momentum they have. It's yeah. really surprising. I'm surprised the family, the families stuck to the secret weapons or mercenaries for so long. That I'm not surprised by because that's, I'm going to say it for what it is. That's communism. Yeah. Okay. Communism. I, I will never understand communism. I I never will Mm -hmm. because, and it's not even in the theory of how it works and all that stuff, but you talk to every communist and they don't trust their government for crap. Right. But yet they're fine with the government running everything. everything. Yeah. So on the one hand, you talk to them and they're like, no, cause communism's the way. It's the only way to do things. Yes. But then you talk about these other things and they're like, well, the fucking government this and fucking government that. And yeah. Government this, government yeah. that. And it's just. Okay. Yeah. So we do both. And I worked with, I worked a lot of, uh, I've worked in the past with a lot of Ukrainian. Yes. You know, folks. And like, I hear that side of it because like they come over here to the States to get away from that stuff. Obviously. Right. Yes. But they'll talk and they just, yeah, no, there's people there that just don't get. Like, they got to pick a side at yes. some point. It's yes. either... You can't have both. Screw the government or you have them do everything you want, but you can't You can't have both. Right. And that's where I get the whole armed men or the weapons testing and all that right. stuff. This is a group. It's a culture that we'll never understand, hopefully, Right. to just be honest, you know, that, yes. you know, we don't know that whole communism rule. We don't. We just don't understand it. No. We don't understand the day-to-day minutiae of dealing with communism right. to stay alive. Yes. So, And it clearly says here, does, you know, with the mass declassification of documents from the Soviet era and the diligent searches of the Dyatlov enthusiasts, there's no evidence no. to suggest. Even the radiation. 
Yes. Like the radiation on the clothes are actually within normal range by today's scientific understanding of radiation levels. Right. So some clothes had more, and some, but also the way those clothes were made during that time period mm-hmm. and where people it all were, factors into it, it all factors into yep. it. But at that time, those levels weren't bad. Right. All the burns that they talk about, yeah, and, and all and that, I that's, get into that that's as through well. exposure. Yes. That's, so the KGB theory centers on Zolotaryov, the man who was foisted on the group at the last minute. A book published in Russia claims that he and two other skiers were KGB agents on an assignment to meet a group of CIA operatives to furnish them with deliberately misleading information and samples of clothing contaminated by radioactive isotopes were to be offered as bait. The CIA agents discovered the deception, killed them, and staged the scene. It's certainly possible that Zolotaryov had a KGB link. His service record in in the Second World War had holes and inconsistencies, and his sudden inclusion certainly seems suspicious. Still, a KGB connection, even if proved, wouldn't mean much. Many people were low-level informants at the time, and the idea that the CIA would have chosen a place like Dead Mountain for a rendezvous strains credulity. So another class of theories considers a variety of natural disasters. An avalanche, perhaps, struck the tent, causing the crushing injuries to three of the victims and forcing the whole group to cut their way out and head to the forest for shelter, but no avalanche debris was found. A ski pole holding up the front of the tent was still standing, and the original investigation determined that the slope was too shallow to generate an avalanche. Yeah. Besides the the injuries to the three victims found in the steam bed from the tent, but the tracks leading downhill showed no signs of anyone being dragged. There were eight or nine separate sets of footprints, so the fatal injuries must have come after everyone had left the tent. Mm Mm-hmm. A 2013 um, bestseller, which is the book you reference, suggests that high winds passing over the mountains created infrastructure. I'll get a. I'll get into yep. that deeper later. Um, vibrations below the range of human hearing, and that this induced such terror that the skiers fled. Much about the book is excellent. Ikar conducted many interviews in Russia and traveled to the Dyatlov Pass in winter, but his thesis would require all nine people who to have been so terrified of a sound they couldn't even hear that they ran to certain death, not grabbing their coats or boots or slashing their way out when the tent door would have made for a far easier See, that's exit. See, that's a tough paraphrase. That's why I'm yeah. going to get into it later. So various hypotheses considered in the 1959 inquest have also been raked over. Carbon monoxide poisoning from the heater, sudden madness caused by consuming bad alcohol or hallucinogenic mushrooms that the Mansi sometimes hung on trees to dry, or even murder by the Mansi themselves if, for instance, the party had strayed onto sacred land. But the autopsies ruled out the first two of these, and when the original investigators interviewed the local Mansi, they found them well-disposed toward Russians. And believable. The Mansi had provided, <clears throat> excuse me, Valuable help in the search, and they told the investigators that the area was not uh, sacred. On the contrary, it was considered windy, barren, and worthless. So by far the most entertaining theory is that the party was attacked by a Yeti. The final photograph (laughs) found in Tybalt Brignol's camera has become famous. A dark figure advancing through the snowy forest, hunched and menacing with no facial features. 
the Discovery Channel built an entire show, yeah. Russian Yeti, the killer lives yeah. around the image. The skiers actually had been joking about Yetis a few hours before they died. A spoof propaganda leaflet was found in the tent alongside such items as greeting the 21st Congress with increased birth rate among hikers. Basically, was, what they did is they made like a funny newspaper. Yes, was the following. Science, colon. In recent years, there has been a heated debate about the existence of the Yeti. Latest evidence indicates that the Yeti lives in the northern Urals near Mount Otorten. Still, the photograph, though blurry, pretty clearly shows a member of the group. Similarly, the Krivanischenko image of streaks of light, which has been used to bolster the UFO and weapons test theories, is typical of the end of a roll of film. Well, and it's a lens flare. Yes. All the Dyatlov theories share a basic assumption that the full story has not been told. In a place where information has been as tightly controlled as in the former Soviet Union, mistrust of official narratives is natural and nothing in the record can explain why people would leave a tent undressed in near suicidal fashion. For decades, the families and the Dyatlov Group Memorial Foundation pressed for a new investigation. Two years ago, elderly relatives of several victims finally succeeded in getting the case reopened. Young prosecutor and... Before you cut into that. Yep. Now, here's the thing with everybody talking about how the case, you know, this has been hidden, that's been hidden. Yep. I think what people have to understand, too, is per Soviet law, criminal case files are to be stored in prosecutor's offices for 25 years. Right. That's the term. Mm Mm-hmm. If there are no appeals filed for the case during that time, the entire case can actually legally be destroyed. Yes. So the Soviet government had its chance to completely destroy the Dyatlov case files, but they chose not to. Right. They kept them. Yes. And I think if you're waving the conspiracy theory flag... Right. Of the governments behind it, the governments hiding things. Then they would have destroyed all the evidence that they had. Their case would have been completely believable if the entire case was destroyed. Right. But the fact is, is they didn't destroy anything. The only thing they got rid of was the tent because of the mold. Yeah, that's all. But everything else is very documented. Yep. Like even when uh, they found the bodies, Yuri, the one that... yes. The 10th hiker that went home. Yep. Excuse me. They called him in. They traveled to him. This was March 7th. Travels to Ivdel by helicopter to identify the belongings of the Dyatlov group. Mm -hmm. And he was actually very helpful with that because he was identifying actual equipment that didn't have like a. Yeah, because they were talking. Luda used to carry like a. It was like a stuffed animal or a stuffed hedge. Something. Yeah. Stuff something. And they said that she always brought that along with her. And that's fueled the conspiracy theory right. that, you know, yes. the only thing that was missing out of all their packs and everything, especially after the shelter, they, the storage yep. shelter, they pulled everything together. The only thing that was missing was two separate things, chocolate and medicinal alcohol. Mm-hmm. And the search party confessed on the day of going to the scene to find a tent that they drank the medicinal alcohol when they got there. Right. Who so, could blame? It was so fucking cold out. Just the, just the so chocolate that, is missing. So it was missing. just the chocolate is missing, which anything could happen with that. Uh, they, you know, yeah, animals could animal have taken that. Or, yeah. or The they, Yeti, 
is yeah. is well known to love the chocolate. The Yeti story is just crazy. But <laughs> but just to again help people with the conspiracy theory stuff, you know, they um the funerals that were held for the first five hikers was March 9th to the tenth in fifty nine. Mm-hmm. And basically they didn't the government didn't want to do a huge public thing for all five hikers. They didn't want to draw as they much didn't want to attention, draw attention to, to this as right. possible. Because typical, wouldn't they have, wouldn't but typical they have communists as, as like a failure, and yeah, they, they're not typical, allowed to fail. Typical com- communism move there. Yes. So what they did is they had separate funerals for right. you know I think it was two for here, each, yeah. two there, you know, and then the the remaining four hikers as the search continued and they ended up finding them later on in March. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had their services, or I'm sorry, May. May. Uh, they had their services. Those uh those services were private to only the families. They didn't even do public with that. Right. Yeah. So that's what kind of fuels the the conspiracy, the conspiracy theory yeah. of the government being up to something because the family wasn't getting their wishes with it. It was hard yeah. for them to get the search moving, but you look at the government and the government's figuring out like, all right, how are we gonna do a search with this? And, and I mean, considering the, the family even blamed the hiking group university. I mean, well, just to I mean, I get, be honest, they, I, they blame them because if they didn't have the hiking group there, they wouldn't die. And it's like, look, I, I get it. Your relative died in a right. really bizarre Grief. circumstance. People do Grief. weird things when People they're grieving. People do weird things yep. when they're grieving. Unfortunately, what they do is they start blaming everybody and anything around yes. the subject, even if it's just a, a crazy thing. thing. At the end of the day, it was a horrible tragic oh, yeah. accident yeah well no it's a horrible tragic tragic accident but here's the thing especially in cold weather hiking crazy shit happens yeah real crazy shit. i mean let's be honest they didn't have to they didn't have to hike then they could have hiked any time you know well yeah but it's the challenge like there's a documentary yeah. for the um k2 mountain mm-hmm. um which is like the Everest, desirable right? Uh, it's kind of like at the base of it. It's like a separate, okay, separate uh mountain. But there's a documentary. I forget the name of it, but it's these. It's basically this this group that went up this expedition group, and everything went wrong. Yes, they made and it not only everything went wrong, but it also showed that like what they shouldn't have done was gone up. It was right. bad weather coming yes. up and all yep. that, and they just said, "Well, no, we're going to take the chance and." You know, they had a couple people that had experience and the rest of them were following. It's a typical thing. Cold weather camping and hiking, people have to really understand how insane it can really get. Yeah. Like in this area that they're at, the temperatures are getting below 20 below zero. Yeah. They had sometimes winds 40 up below to zero. 65 miles an hour and temperatures are, are around yeah, minus 30. Those are gusts. Yeah. Gusts at that. But yes. you're looking at an average of 40 miles an hour. Yeah. So. Like the high peaks in uh, the Adirondacks in, in the state of New yeah. York. There's basically, you have the the high peaks. You can do your high, your summer high peaks and your winter high peaks. Right. Now, a lot of people like hike, hiking in the winter, and this is why. Number one, no bugs. Yeah. Can't be understated. It's a yes. beautiful experience. There's no bugs. Also, it's quiet. Yes. It's beautifully quiet. No one else is hiking because they're not stupid yeah, enough to say, be out in the less, winter. Less, uh, but I've done some winter hiking up there, and mm-hmm. it really is. It's peaceful. It's a whole different way to look at the woods. But as you start getting up to the peak, it's crazy. Yeah. 
you got 40 mile an hour winds just blowing all the time. It's mm-hmm. just, just like blowing constantly. And you really got to keep your head straight because you can make some stupid decisions. And if right. you make a bad decision in that, it's deadly. Yes. I mean, yes. even in good weather, if you're out and say you turn your ankle or something like that, mm-hmm. it's tough. It's real tough. It's tough if someone can go out and help you or anything like that. In the winter, it magnifies. If if you break an ankle or fold an ankle in a winter scenario, it's really tough. Yeah, you're screwed. Even just Which getting is why help. in the winter, you stay home inside with hot chocolate. You watch that that series or that trilogy of movies you that, you've been, that you've been waiting to watch. You Netflix and, and chill. And you sit yeah. back, maybe order yeah. some pizza. <laughs> maybe you do a pot roast and then you have some popcorn yeah. and you stay inside. But here's the thing, like even in nice <laughs> weather, and this is where people got to understand just search parties. Yeah. Cause like it used to drive me nuts being near the Adirondacks every year. Somebody would go missing. Dumb hikers yep. that get lost. Yep. Or they just don't pack right or whatever. Because, like, in the spring in the Adirondacks, I used to see it all the time. I'd be hiking up through there, especially the high peaks, Mm -hmm. and I'd be coming down, and I'd see somebody with flip-flops, shorts, T-shirt, no water, no backpack. And I'm like, what are you doing? Turn around. Yeah. And they're, well, we're just, no, we're hiking up to the top. I'm like, there's still six inches of snow up there. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. There's six inches of snow up there. I'm sorry, but if you think you're going to hike in flip-flops, mm-hmm. you're a special kind of stupid. Yeah, no, Darwin needs to take care of them. That's, All right, uh, so let's know. get to... Uh, so the the theories, again, going through and kind of blasting these theories off, one of them is the Manzi attack of the local tribes, which you brought up. And, it's the Yeti man. Yeah, no, and, and basically the Manzi stayed away from the mountain. It wasn't, there was no hunting opportunity. There was no, it held it was no religious or them. sacred value. It was, it was useful. But they also used to call it. Dead Mountain. Dead Mountain. Yeah. And it was Dead Mountain for a lot of reasons. Yeah. You know, the, the high winds theory. The winds weren't simply not fast enough because the theory is, is that the winds blew them down. Like they, they got out of their tent. And the, wind and the winds blew, blew them down. down. But the fact is, is the winds weren't fast enough at 40 miles an hour. All hikers being blown down to the mountain doesn't fit well, let alone cutting the tent from the inside to get out of the tent. Right. Um, lastly, how would nine hikers get blown down the mountain, yet the tent, fine, stays yeah. up there. Uh, the armed men, we got through that one. Weapons testing, we got through that one. Radiation, we got through that. It's classified, we got through that. Yeah. The Yeti slash aliens thing. It's just no evidence. <laughs> I mean, oh, my God. <laughs> you and I could sit here and just say, you know what? Vampire elves did it. Werewolves, man. Yeah. No, it's just there's no there's no proof of it. No. So you and I actually go in two different directions. Well, and that's why I saved. Let's get into this, this investigation, which he started in 2019. Mm-hmm. So um, Andre Kier... Kuryakov was put in charge, and in 2019, he organized a winter expedition to the site. His Mm -hmm. team took measurements, surveyed, photographed, conducted a variety of experiments using photogrammetry of the pictures taken in 1955. Mm -hmm. They tried to establish the precise location of the tent. The spot they settled on was several hundred feet from a cairn marking the previously accepted location on a steeper section of Kolot's. Siakel's slope. 
Combing through historical data, the investigators determined that weather conditions on the mountain that night were even more extreme than had been thought. The skiers were engulfed in a storm with winds up to 65 miles an hour and temperatures around minus 30 degrees Fahrenheit. As evening fell, they were probably unsure of their precise location. From the outset, Kuryakov adopted an intentionally narrow scope, dismissing 72 of the 75 explanations for what might have happened. A large class of these 75 versions are conspiracy theories alleging that the authorities were somehow involved in the incident, he said when announcing the investigation. We've already proved that, that this is absolutely false. This left the investigation with three natural occurrences to consider, an avalanche, a hurricane, and a slab of snow sliding over the tent. Last July, Kuryakov held a televised press conference in which he told his audience that the last of these was the definitive explanation. Two photographs taken by the Dyatlov party at around 5 p.m. while they pitched the tent show that they cut deeply into the snowpack at right angles to the slope, forming a hollow. They had picked a spot where the mountain peak offered some shelter from the strongest winds. Later in the evening, Kuryakov said, a snow slab detached from the slope above and buried most of the tent, pinning down the occupants and possibly causing injuries. Fearing that a full-scale avalanche was imminent, the skiers cut their way out of the downslope side of the tent and fled to a rock ridge 150 feet away, which Kuryakov termed a natural avalanche limiter. But the big avalanche didn't come, and in pitch darkness, they were unable to find their way back to the tent and took shelter in the woods a mile away. Kuryakov tested this theory by blindfolding a man and a woman and leading them 90 feet downhill from a tent. Asked to find their way back, they quickly went astray. The task would have been even more difficult in a blizzard, with most of the tent buried in snow. Analyzing 1959 photographs, many Dyatlov researchers had calculated that the tent was pitched, was pitched on a slope of some 15 degrees, which is not steep enough to sustain the movement of snow in cold conditions. The new position of the tent, as determined by Kuryakov's topographical experts, was therefore crucial because the gradient here was between 23 and 26 degrees, enough for avalanche formation. A paper corroborating much of Kuryakov's explanation was published in January by two Swiss engineers in the journal Communications, Earth, and Environment. Creating a mathematical model of the snow structure that night, the researchers showed why the slab didn't release immediately when the group cut into it, but only hours later. Additional loading of snow during the storm was responsible. Reviewed the the um the hypothesis with Ethan Green, the director of the Colorado Avalanche Information Center, who has a PhD in physics of heat and mass transfer in snow. He suggested that the party's decision to pitch the tent in the wind shadow of the peak made it likely that they were cutting into a so-called wind slab, an accumulation of hard snow even more dangerous than a typical snow slab. Compacted by the wind, this kind of snow is several times denser than directly deposited snow and, according to Green, can weigh as much as 670 pounds per cubic yard. Therefore, the clear conditions preceding the storm could have led to the formation of a layer of light, feathery frost known as surface hoar. When buried in fresh snow during the storm, 
This layer forms a hazardous stratum that provides poor support to the snow above and often releases resulting in avalanches by removing the support at the lower edge of the slab while digging to set their tent, the skiers likely caused it to fracture higher up. If the wind slab had simply slid over the tent and halted without developing into a full-fledged avalanche, the evidence, Green said, might not be visible 25 days later. Even the fissure in the snowpack would probably have been erased by the elements. If a three-foot thick slab moved over the tent, each skier's body would have been covered by more than a thousand pounds. The massive weight prevented them from retrieving their boots or warm clothing and forced them to cut their way out of the downslope side of the tent. The two Swiss researchers believe that the snow slab probably caused the terrible injuries to three of the skiers found at the snow den, but this remains unlikely given the distance of those bodies from the tent. Kuryakov's exclamation was more ingenious. The nine skiers retreated downhill, taking shelter under the cedar tree and building a fire. Because the young trees nearby were icy and wet, someone climbed the cedar to break branches higher up, hence the skin and uh, scraps of clothing found on the trunk. The fire they built in these extreme conditions was not enough to save them, however. The two most poorly dressed of the group died first. The burned skin on their bodies came from their desperate efforts to seek warmth from the fire. This would suggest that the piece of flesh Krivanischenko bit from his finger was probably a result of the, de the delirium that overtakes someone who's dying of hypothermia, or perhaps from an attempt to test for sensation in a frostbitten hand. The surviving skiers cut the clothes off their dead comrades and dressed themselves in the remnants. At some point, the group split. Three skiers, including Dyatlov, tried to return to the tent and soon froze to death as they struggled uphill. The other four, who were better dressed, decided to build a snow, a snow den to shelter in overnight. They needed deep snow, which they found in a ravine a couple of hundred feet away. Unfortunately, the spot they picked lay above a stream, a tributary of the Lozva River. The stream, which never freezes, had hollowed out a deep icy tunnel, and the group's digging caused its roof to collapse, throwing them onto the rocky steam bed and burying them in 10 to 15 feet of snow. The pressure of tons of snow forcing them against the rocks caused the traumatic injuries found in this group. The gruesome facial, facial damage, the missing tongue, eyes, and lip, probably resulted from scavenging by small, um, by small animals and from decomposition. Kuryakov closed his press conference by declaring, formally, this is it, the case is closed. Given how uh, freighted the case is in Russia, this was too optimistic. For many people, nature alone cannot explain a tragedy of this magnitude. Perpetrators must be identified and the state and its dark past invoked. Sure enough, the conclusions were greeted with scorn, especially by the families of the dead. The Dyatlov Group Memorial Foundation sent a letter to the prosecutor general declaring that, in its view, the skiers' deaths were caused by the atmospheric release of a powerful toxic substance when a secret weapons test went wrong. Natalia Varsagova, a Moscow journalist who has covered the subject for many years, also rejected Kuryakov's conclusions. Two years ago, I thought that the prosecutor, Andrei Kuryakov, really wanted to know the truth, she wrote to me in an email, but now I doubt it. I don't believe in the in an avalanche. After the Swiss report came out, 
she published an article rejecting it as well. These uh, theoreticians' conclusions are supported by mathematical calculations, formulas, and diagrams, but the local Monsi, numerous tourists, and organizers of snowmobile tours who have never seen avalanches on this slope are unlikely to agree with them. A month after the press conference, Kuryakov was reprimanded for holding it without authorization. In October, he was removed from his post. The prosecutor's office has claimed that he resigned and he did not respond to requests for an interview. Early this year, he was appointed a deputy minister of natural resources in the Sverdlovsk region, which is a major timber producer. As Kuncevich wrote to me sarcastically, Kuryakov was shunted off to felling trees. Meanwhile, the prosecutor general declined to be interviewed for this article, and his office has issued no official report. Kuncevich believes that a report may never be released, even to the families. The foundation is now calling for yet another investigation, and any clarity that Kuryakov's solution might have brought was quickly occluded amid an atmosphere of murk and distrust. The most appealing aspect of Kuryakov's scenario is that the Dyatlov's party's actions no longer seem irrational. The snow slab, according to Green, would probably have made loud cracks and rumbles as it fell across the tent, making an avalanche seem imminent. Kuryakov noted that although the skiers made an error in the placement of their tent, everything they did subsequently was textbook. They conducted an emergency evacuation to ground that would be safe from an avalanche, they took shelter in the woods, they started a fire, they dug a snow cave. Had they been less experienced, they might have remained near the tent, dug it out, and survived. But avalanches are by far the biggest risk in the mountains in winter. And the more experience you, you have, the more you fear them. The skiers' expertise doomed them. At the end of 1958, as the date of the departure approached, Krivanischenko wrote a letter to Dyatlov, firming up various logistical matters and enclosed a poem addressing New Year's greetings to the entire group. Here's wishing you camps pitched on mountains afar, routes to hike over ranges untamed, packs that, as ever, rest lightly on your backs, and weather that smiles upon your quest, and let your footprints trace winding tracks across the map of Russia. I think out of two theories... I mean, the avalanche one, I want to believe. It's an easy one to want to believe. Yeah. But I I can't go there. Mm-hmm. I really can't. The, the source that I was reading, they said that the measurements of the incline, and you said to it, pointed to an avalanche as unlikely, mm-hmm. if not impossible. There was also no records of an avalanche occurring on the mountain that time period. Mm-hmm. And also 54 years after the tragedy. Yes. So investigators who visited the slope in 1959, it wasn't even an idea that mm-hmm. an avalanche occurred. And this is where I have a problem with that simulation and theory, because mm-hmm. that's all it is. I agree with the family members on this. It's people just trying to wave science in the air and they say, oh, well, this is science. Mm-hmm. You can't, you know. Right. It's above you. can't you. argue against it's science. It's above you. You can't argue against science. But the fact is, is you had all these experienced people mm-hmm. up there searching, and you think for one second, if they could have used avalanche as an excuse, they, they wouldn't would've. have? Give me a break. 
no way. There's no way in hell they would have just saw Avalanche and said, you know, oh, yeah, no, we don't know what's going on. It's an unknown force. Mm-hmm. Yet some nerds, I'm just going to say it for what it is, some nerds in a room are going to pop some stuff into a computer model. Right. Because you can pop anything in a computer model and make it work. True. It's just really like true. statistics. You can make yeah. them work for you You can too. make them work for you or yep. against you. It just depends on what your motive is. I think the problem is with the avalanche theory is, is they went searching for an avalanche and they found an avalanche. Yeah. I think if they spent as much time trying to prove an avalanche as disprove one, mm-hmm. which is, I think, a big problem with science now. Yes. It's gotten really clouded with judgment. They People just walk no right in and anything. like right there. It's yeah. just, you know, that whole thing you read, there was nothing there to state that they even attempted to disprove an avalanche. No, they didn't. It's just everything that proves it. And and I'm sorry, I'm just not buying it. And here's why. One simple reason. The tents was found largely intact and secured to the ground. And the author of the book that I did, Donnie, yes. he contacted a director of the Forest Service uh, Utah Avalanche Center. Reviewed all the data. Now, you got to understand, the author went up there and took pictures of everything. Mm-hmm. I got to preface this. Right. He took pictures of everything all around that whole area. Sent it to this guy at this avalanche center, and he concluded it's it's highly unlikely that an avalanche hit the hikers, the mm-hmm. tenors surrounding area. But, I mean, let's break it down. Say they broke that ice shelf. Yeah, then that the whole, snow slab. That whole, that whole snow slab, which is ice and snow. Yes. And everybody's got to remember it's not powder. No. This is, like, packed by the wind and yeah. just harsh environments. Yeah. It's hard snow. It would have mowed that tent down. And it would have been just in shambles. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to post on the Facebook group the picture of the tent, the tent as the first people who saw it. Right. As it looks. Mm-hmm. And I think you look at that one picture and you're going to say there's no way an avalanche happened. Because mm-hmm. the post is still up. Right. It clearly said that first uh, post Yeah. in the front was it's still, still up. erect. Yeah. yeah. Which if that happened, you know, so now like. I think what people got to really try to figure out, and I think this is the, the biggest question, is what made these hikers leave the tent? Something That's made them leave the tent. That's where you got to start. Yes. I think if you go through all these different things, you just got to ask yourself, what made them leave the tent, period? Mm-hmm. Let's not even talk about the the knives uh, cutting the tent from the inside right. out. Right, yeah. Let's not even talk about that. No. Why did they leave? Right. That's the first Ex- thing. And here's and here's the other thing. So basically, you got to ask yourself why they left the tent. Yes. And not only left the tent, but left the tent without clothes. Yes. Boots, everything was still but, in there. But here's the thing. Not everybody left without clothes. There were some, some people, people that had, had clothes. clothes. Yes. Some people didn't. Yes. And, and this is, again, where I, I really can't say it enough. You're never going to have a right answer on this. No. I mean, you know... Like I said, that I got it from a quote from the book, but it was the guy, he basically talked to, um, I think it was people from like the NOAA. Uh, he was talking, this is where this right. next theory of infrasound comes up. And I think it's the most plausible one. Mm-hmm. I really do. Um, but people are trying to reverse engineer an event without any witnesses whatsoever. Right. That's And that's impossible to do. But basically, the author of this book goes all in in the end, on atmospheric infrasound. Mm-hmm. 
And basically what that is, is uh, it's sound waves that travel through the air at frequencies below those on the audible spectrum. Mm-hmm. Frequencies referred to as infrasound. Okay. Infrasound is the opposite of ultrasound. And it actually occurs below the threshold of human hearing at 20 hertz. Mm-hmm. While ultrasound frequencies fall above hearing at thresholds of 20,000 hertz. Mm-hmm. So you have ultrasound up top. It's so and, and high, for, you can't hear it. Sound at the bottom, Infra so low, sounds at you the can't bottom, hear it's it. It's so low, you can't hear it. So people can actually experience effects of infrasonic frequencies pulsating, the pulsing through their eardrums. And these low frequency waves, since they're lower, they're a lot more damaging, mm-hmm. um, can cause the eardrum to vibrate the actual hair cells of the inner ear. Mm-hmm. And the effect of this is that although sound may not be audible to the actual casual listener, the excited hair cells in your inner ear send impulses to the brain. And this disconnects between apparent silence and the brain's receiving signals from the ear. And this is actually extremely disruptive to the, to the body. Mm-hmm. Uh, man-made sources of infrasound are numerous. So this isn't just a theory. Is this what they did on Mythbusters when they set yes, up? Yes, I was going to bring that up because Mythbusters actually did it. Yes. And um, and I'll, I'll get to that. Um, but basically, like cooling and ventilation systems, wind farms are yes. common culprits. Yes. And these low-frequency waves will also occur in nature as byproducts of like earthquakes, landslides, uh, meteors, uh, storms, and tornadoes. Mm-hmm. Winds of a certain speed can encounter an obstructive landscape. You got to have these two pieces together. Right. You got to have winds going at a certain speed and it's got to hit some sort of an obstructive landscape. Right. And this will naturally uh, bring on infrasound that can be devastating to humans, causing nausea, severe illness, mm-hmm. psychological disturbances, even suicide. Right. People just go mad. Right. And this has been theoretically produced by experimental sound weaponry. Mm-hmm. Like they're actually trying to make, believe it or not, weapons of this stuff. There's, I there's histories of that. It. Oh yeah, the earliest public applications of infrasound had actually been in early uh, 1950s Cold War, mostly surrounded nuclear blasts of secret Soviet bomb tests, mm-hmm. and there was interest in measuring these types of sound waves. Right. That's in the modern way how they actually got it going on. Uh, 2003, there was a scientific experiment conducted using a demonstration of infrasound's effects on humans where they were actually just targeting humans period and in london researchers hit a infrasonic cannon in the back of a concert hall right they bring in an audience of 750 people and they were asked to sit through four similar contemporary pieces of music while unbeknownst to them two of the pieces included waves generated by the device right 165 people of the 750, 22%, experienced body chills, strange feelings of uneasiness, sorrow, nervousness, revulsion, and fear during the infrasonic uh, sessions. And some of the same 22% reported accelerated heartbeat, sudden memory of an emotional loss, Mm -hmm. just really stirring up some stuff. Some are not sensitive to these effects and others are not. Right. And there are some governments that have actually attempted to harness the effects of infrasound. The Israelis actually use it for crowd control. Okay. So the idea is that when exposed to the waves, people just don't want anything to do with the area. Right. It's just like, I don't feel good here, and it gets them back. 
And such uh, tactics are intended to disperse crowds with sound pulses that create nausea and dizziness. Right. Infrasound was also used by Nazi Germany to stir up anger and strong emotions in crowds able to hear Hitler speak. Mm-hmm. And Hitler also ordered infrasound experiments to be conducted on prisoners for torture. So now what you have is um, what's called a Carmen Vortex Street. I had to laugh when I was reading this because, like, I remember, I think I mentioned it in a podcast before where, like, I just think there's too much shit in the air. Yes. I personally think that. Yes. I think that's a lot of, like, depression, things like that. I don't agree with the whole cell tower things. and Right. You know, yeah. I think that's unnatural, mm-hmm. obviously, because... Nature didn't put it up there. No, you know, it didn't. I mean, I know we're nature, but we're kind of creating a separate nature here. But, yeah. But it was interesting because I got this idea from, I used to work at a, um, it was a very big company and their global uh, research and development center. I, I worked in for about a year, year and a half. Mm-hmm. And I met some phenomenal people there. Really, really smart engineers, Some scientists. Pants. Oh yeah, engineers, scientists, and stuff like that. So there was this uh, building off to the side of the campus, and they would. Um, I never asked what they were doing because I didn't go over there much, and it was a long walk, and I was doing tech support, fixing fixing computers and stuff. Right. Yeah. So there was this one guy there, and he had a picture. It was just odd. It was a picture of Norm Sebastian, who used to be an old weatherman. Mm-hmm. Um. So in the capital region of New York, Albany area, there was three weathermen at that time. There was Bob Kovacic, Norm Sebastian, and um, oh, what's the one with the pet connections there? Uh, Steve er, Caparizzo. Steve Caparizzo. They were like the weather gods. Mm-hmm. They were, I think it might've been another one, but there was these three, they were like the weather gods. And this is before like technology, like they were just getting into Doppler and stuff. Yeah. And I have to admit it was amazing growing up because they literally could predict the weather. Mm-hmm. Like you could hear anybody else, but you were like, what did Bob say? Yeah. Or what did Norm say? You know, cause if Bob and, and especially if Bob, Norm and I, the Steve? other guy, I think it was Steve. If they all were saying the same thing, you were getting snow that day, you were getting rain, right. you were getting you sun, were getting whatever you, know, they you were said. getting whatever they were saying. And he had this picture of him there, and I was like, dude, I'm like, I'm like that's Norm Sebastian. He goes, yeah. I go, do you know him? I'm thinking, like, maybe yeah. he's friends with him or something like that, but it was kind of weird. He goes, no, I just always liked him, always, you know, kind of, you know, so I'm like, okay, it's, it's different, you know, you're fan, fan fanboying over a weatherman, <laughs> you know. Or meteorologist for those sensitive to that. But the uh but he started one way or another we were talking about work he was doing and he was doing work with sound and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And he brought up this Carmen Vortex Street thing with with sound. It's actually named after a Hungarian physicist, Theodore von uh Carmen. And it's an occurrence in uh fluid dynamics of both liquids and gases. And the aerodynamics of weather phenomena these air vortices or small tornadoes are created when wind at a certain speed hits a blunt object of a particular shape and size. Geographic masses uh, around the world are known to cause this pattern of vortices. Mm -hmm. When these vortices are large or when revved up at a higher speed, they can reach the destruction threshold of a tornado. Mm -hmm. So for instance, when strong winds hit the rock of Gibraltar, Mm -hmm. Uh, powerful vortices spin off the rock and they're actually believed to cause uh, they, they're the cause of like capsizing ships in the strait. Mm-hmm. 
These same destructive vortices are oftentimes accompanied by the twin danger of infrasonic frequencies because you now got right. these high winds blowing. So there's a rock there where they stayed, and it's called Boot Rock. Mm-hmm. Is and it shaped like a boot? Yeah, it's just like a big, like, I don't know, it's just an awkward piece. But, you know, they call it Boot Rock. And Donnie, the author of the book that I referenced from, he was all about it at the time when he was writing that it seemed like a good candidate for this phenomena. However, the problem was, as he talked to experts, it wasn't large enough to produce a strong effect. Right. So he actually got, again, he was with the NOAA. And, right. you know, he was talking about how he had to go through all these security checks to get in through. And, yeah. And he was talking to a group of them. And the group of them didn't even know anything about the Dyatlov Pass incident. Right. Which I thought was pretty credible because, like, now you have people that have a total outside experience. So at first they just start talking about all of the theories, you know, and just nipping them off one by one, one by one, one by one. And they were all in agreement of it. Um, So then they talk about boot rock and they were like, no, not big enough. They're like, send me all your pictures, send everything. He gives them everything and he's going to agree to see him one more day. Right. The next day he comes back, they actually have an answer for it. And what they were saying was is the symmetrical dome shape of the summit mm-hmm. combined with its proximity to the tent's location right. would actually have created the ideal conditions for a Carmen vortex. And not only a Carmen vortex, but also with infrasound. Right. So it would be difficult to come up uh, with a more ideal confluence of weather and landscape to create Carmen vortex street, what they call it, with vortices that would produce infrasound. These vortices would have been screaming right outside the hiker's tent. They would start to hear the winds pick up. Then to the south, they'd start feeling a vibration in the ground. They would hear a roar that would seem to pass them from west to east. They would start to feel more vibration on the floor. The fabric of the tent vibrates. Another roar of a freight train passes by, this time from the north. Mm -hmm. They're just feeling surrounded. Right. The roaring sounds turn horrifying. Their chest cavities begin to vibrate from the infrasound right. created yep. by this stronger vortex now passing. Effects off inf- uh, infrasound are beginning to be felt by the hikers. Panic, fear, trouble breathing as physiological frequencies are generated. An uncompelling force. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, really kind of to tie it around the whole thing. So what... This guy from the NOAA was saying, he says, basically, those nine hikers probably picked the worst spot in that entire area of the northern Ural Mountains to pitch their tent. Yes. And I actually have a picture of this that I took from the book, and here it is, and it's where they describe Right. that's it going over the dome. And I'm going to share this on Facebook when we release the podcast. And then basically, this is the wind turning sideways and then this would be their tent and it would be the two vortices now to me this makes all the sense in the world of why they would leave the tent Mm -hmm. because they just feel terrible and you get to a point like i said surrounded feel surrounded but also just i think even feeling surrounded you'd still want to stay in your tent like i look at it just being a hiker myself like the tent's the best thing you have it really is. It has all your shit in it. It's really the best thing you have. Yeah. Even if you get attacked, you know, I mean, you're you're going to want to get out the tent at that point. But again, this is where, like, you start saying that and you can't say it because there was no evidence of the tent getting attacked. Right. 
And again, it goes back to that whole thing. Like, why are they trying to, why did they leave the tent? Why did they leave the tent without clothes on? Why did they? Yeah. So obviously they weren't thinking clearly. Correct. And this here seems compelling to me mm-hmm. that they would just say, I've got to get out of here. Yeah. Like anything. We got to go. Anything's better than here. Yeah. Which is actually a great place to be. Right. Yes. So what the hell happened that was so bad that they had to get out? That's where I am lost on the avalanche. I wanted to believe avalanche so bad. I was reading the whole thing. I'm like, avalanche, But here's avalanche. the thing. In their mind, if they're hearing all that stuff, like a, the sound of a freight train, and mm-hmm. they're feeling all of that, like the vibrations, they're going to think in their mind, avalanche. Yeah, but even an avalanche, I mean, like, if so, all right, say it's an avalanche, and they cut the tent, yeah, and they run down. Now, here's the thing. They're separated out. Yeah. And what also a thing we neglected to mention that we have to bring up is the fact that the full, the moon wasn't up yet. Mm-hmm. And. So they couldn't see. It's a hundred percent darkness out right. there. Yeah. It's just flat out dark. Um, and they can't see anything. Mm-hmm. Now it doesn't really show in the, in, in the tracks, like also in the tracks, why did they separate? You know, if you're a hundred yards or 300 yards away from somebody, you would hope to hear somebody, but then here's the things too. You got 40 mile an hour winds. Yeah, you're not going to hear shit. And you shit. can't hear anything. No. Which again, like leaving the tent, like, like yeah. even if it was a, uh, and that's that's where it, it could have been the noise and they thought it was an avalanche and left. That's mm-hmm. a, it's a good procedure. But even that, like, I don't know, I would just put clothes on. The way I would look at it is like, I'm in the middle of nowhere and I'm just saying this being a, like I'm putting my hiker mind out. If I was out in those elements, I'd rather be buried by snow with my clothes on than out there in the 40 mile an hour wind with no clothes on. Well, like you said, they weren't thinking clearly. They were panicked. No. And that's what I'm saying. Like you have a group of people here that generally don't panic. And they generally know what they're doing. Yeah. They generally know what they're doing. So what would it take to make, this is where I take the leap to the infrasound. Mm-hmm. What would it take for them to lose their mind? Yeah. Ultimately, like, why would they lose their mind and leave a tent with no clothes on mm-hmm. and just run out? And and it's it's basically saying you're not thinking clearly. And all of this kind of points to yeah, right. a reason of why they wouldn't be thinking clearly mm-hmm. and why they were just like, again, like the crowd control that the Israelis do, they just use it. So people say, I just got to get out of here. Right. This doesn't feel yeah. right. And, and that's, again, we'll never know what the hell happened. No, but no, I think what's interesting of this is, unless you have a time machine and yeah. you can go back tonight. But what was great about this is, I mean, you got hikers that come up, they, they're dis they disappear or they don't come back. Yeah. And basically a week, week and a half later, they find them. Right. They start finding them. Yeah. And, and all of these theories just go crazy. 75. 75 theories. theories. 75, 75 I actual love that theories. UFOs and Yetis made the cut. I know, which to me is insane <laughs> exactly. because there's no evidence of it. So says you, Frank. Well. There's. There's photos. Yeah. The lens flare <laughs> one, because like even the author of this book, yeah. like he's a photographer and I just, yeah, I, I can share that experience where you just look and it's like, it's a lens flare. It's like, yeah. stop, just 
stop. It's a lens flare. It's UFOs, man. But you could even tell somebody that's a lens, you know, it's a lens flare. You know, no, 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 man. It's like, dude, I, you know. People believe what they want to they believe. They really do. Yeah. Once the doors open for them to go in and, and yeah. set camp, so to speak. But this is a real, uh, I was glad we did this one. I learned a lot with this. Me too. And it took me, uh, it took me down history lane with that guy that well, I used to work with. It's and, a good thing. Because guess what? I know. History we got lane. history coming up. We do. We sure we do. do. Gettysburg. We do. We are bringing up Gettysburg. We are. Yeah. And um, all of the paranormal I'm going experiences to around. approach Gettysburg from the view of the ghosts of Gettysburg. And you're going to approach Gettysburg as... Yo, man, this is what happened. Yeah, we actually got some, some. Uh, it's gonna be great. We you got guys. some architecture with this one, and and it's actually good because you're gonna be right in your realm. Yes. And I'm gonna be in my realm of a historical account of, of what happened. Guys, we're gonna nerd out. And we didn't so bad. We didn't want to make this too much of a history type thing in this sense, but like the show, it was weird. We never thought we'd be doing history, but now and yet here we here are. Here we are. We're a history <laughs> podcast. You know, I mean, we do historical accounts of very odd and bizarre things which is our wheelhouse which is well let's be honest that's history yeah it's however all bizarre odd well weird. yeah but I, I i definitely we wanted to bring the historical account of gettysburg because unfortunately not many people know a what happened before gettysburg no what made gettysburg there are happened. people that don't know what happened at Gettysburg. Yeah, period. Yeah. So, which we I thought, find baffling. Well, that's uh, I'm sorry. Teachers, teach the kids. Come on, you man. Know, put your uh, roll your sleeves up. Go to work. But uh but we'll go to work for you. We'll do your job for you. So, so basically, yeah, that was we found this a great opportunity to basically hopefully you can learn a little more about Gettysburg. But also get I'm, into I'm some really weird things that happen at Gettysburg. And it's weird, man. There are some weird things. Yeah. Real yeah. weird things. And we're looking very forward to it. We um, we thank you, as always, for listening to us. Yes. And engaging and, with us. And uh, we're seeing some bumps in our in our downloads. And All the thank time. Thank you from wherever you came from. I, yeah. I know I put a little shout out. I did some shameless self-promotion yeah, on a uh, Coven of Nerddom. So mm -hmm. if you found us through that, yeah. thank you. Thank you and welcome hope, to... Uh, hope you enjoy us. Welcome to the ride. It's, yes. uh, so <laughs> we will be doing... Let's see. Gettysburg, I believe, is our... Yeah, it's 30. our 30th episode. Yeah. Dirty 30. Ooh, <laughs> I like it. But we have to let y'all go because we have to get some ice cream. We do. Homemade ice cream. We do. We'll tell you all about it. It'll be great. <laughs> have a wonderful day. Have a wonderful week. No dolls. No Ouija uh, no boards. No Ouija boards. Yeah. No dolls. No dolls. No capes. No capes. No blood rituals. No blood rituals at all. No cults. No cults. Satanic we're, or otherwise. We're adding no cults. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We are. Yep. If you if you have to pay to get in. If everybody's wearing the same outfit yes. when you get there, turn around and leave. What was that movie we watched that your co Midsummer. Midsummer. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Watch uh -huh. Midsummer. And here's the thing. 
if you watch Midsummer and you're halfway through the movie where they're in the commune and you're halfway through that part and you say to yourself, yeah, this is a cult. You're too late. Yeah. You should have known right when they walked into the field. Yeah. So if you know right when they're walking into the field that that's a bad situation, we don't have to worry about you. You're a good horror fanatic. Yes. However, we're looking out for our other horror fanatics. Yes. If you're watching that movie and you're halfway in, like when the, the chick falls off the cliff. Yes. And you're it's looking and you're like, you know what? They need to get out of there. You're in too deep. It's too late. You got to talk to a friend that knew it from the beginning of the field, and they're going to tell you yeah. what you need to know yes. to stay away from cults. <laughs> Absolutely. That's our PSA. Yes. It's our good deed for That's the day. It's our public service. The more you know. Wing. Throw some stars. <laughs> so thanks a lot, folks. We love you. Have a great day. Have and a great week. As always, make good choices. Take care.